how was I going to get there? I would have to sleep on some couches. I would have to sleep in the backseat of my car. But it was the path of getting there that has set me up with the relationships that I have. I'm so blessed and so fortunate that I was able to do these things. But a lot of it's because I wasn't always right. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. Welcome to episode number 13. Today, my guest is Corey Conrad. Corey is the Senior Director of Strategic Alliance and Entertainment at Caruso. Crusoe owns many, many properties. Uh, if you live in Los Angeles, I'm sure you're familiar with the Grove or the Americana. I absolutely love the Grove. It's one of my favorite places to go when I'm in L.A. Although it's very crowded, it's just such a beautiful, picturesque outdoor retail center. If you go to Los Angeles, I recommend stopping by the Grove and just checking it out. In fact, during the wintertime, since it's 80 degrees in California, it actually they put out some fake snow and it just makes you feel like you have some sort of wintry feelings while you're in southern, sunny California. In this episode today, Corey explains how he went from having dreams of being a music ma- uh, a Grammy award-winning singer to eventually finding his niche in sales and marketing. So listen to how all of the little detours took him to where he is today. It's a little bit of a longer story. Uh, but I hope that you enjoy it, and I'll see you halfway through. Thank you for joining, Corey. Happy to be here. If you could just give a little update about what you are working on today. Yeah, so I currently hold the role as Senior Director of Strategic Alliances and Entertainment for Caruso. Caruso is a retail and real estate development company based here in Southern California. Uh, we own and operate and manage several retail, residential, and hotel components uh, throughout the area, from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles to Glendale to Marina del Rey, Calabasas, Thousand Oaks, and uh, beyond. So we are a high-end retail experience destination, really a lifestyle company uh, for our guests. Each year, we welcome about 45 million guests to our properties. Some of our most famous properties are the Grove, right in the heart of Los Angeles, the Americana at Brand in Glendale. Uh, we are opening soon a Pacific Palisades property next year, as well as our Rosewood Hotel in Santa Barbara at the uh, middle of next year, which we're very, very excited about. My role in the organization is I uh, work with the team to lead strategic partnerships. So that's any time a brand can be present in front of our 45 million guests. That's billboard advertising, it's digital advertising, it's Wi-Fi packages and sponsorships, it's some of our big events each year, such as our summer concert series, as well as our big Christmas tree lighting ceremonies, uh, sponsor, headlining sponsors, as well as just regular guest engagement. So we valet cars at our properties. So uh, water brands are interested in having that visibility of having their water brand as opposed to another for the complimentary water that we give to our guests in valet. To when you log on to the Wi-Fi, it's brought to you by 
Studio X that's able to share their newest 15-second uh, clip of their newest movie or TV show they're working on. Wow. So it's any, any way a brand can get in front of a consumer. Uh, that's my job to monetize that. Uh, but most importantly, it's really deliver a, a positive and impactful guest experience um, and leveraging that to uh, be a, a big piece of business for the company. Kind of rewinding a little bit, take us back to the beginning. What brought you to where you are today? So let's go all the way back. All the way back. I love it. So I had a, a little interesting of an upbringing. Uh, my dad was 27 years Army, so I was an Army brat. Uh, I was born in Georgia, uh, moved to London, England. After that, Frankfurt, Germany, then to Washington, D.C., Virginia Beach, spent some time in New York, back to D.C., then to Vicenza, Italy, about an hour north of Venice, back to D.C., then spent some, uh, then went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, at Belmont University, uh, and then moved on to L.A. So I tell that only in that every two years until I was pretty much 16 years old, I was moving. And this is before cell phones, it's before Facebook, it's before any of those types of communication where every two years I was having to make new friends. And I was forced to, you know, pen pals didn't really exist in, in the army where I was an army brat is because you, you were moving. And so if you're in Germany and writing a letter to your friend in Germany, um, well, they may have been, you know, their parents may have been commissioned to a, a new place. And so it was, it was an interesting upbringing because you know, only now, you know, in the last decade plus with Facebook, have I been able to reconnect with some of these friends that I had when I was 11, 10, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, and, you know, we've kind of rekindled some of those friendships. Uh, but overall, I had an upbringing where I was always the new kid, always the new kid. I didn't have friends. You know, I, the longest friends I've had now are the friends that I made when I was in college when I was 18. Those are the friends that I've been able to endure the relationship because we had the technology to sustain a friendship. And so it's an interesting upbringing. I, I share that only because it has forced me to go outside of my comfort zone my entire life. Since I was a little kid, I was forced to go outside of what I felt comfortable. And so in a sales role where I have now uh, in a sales capacity, it's interesting because I kind of liken some of my, uh, my skill set from when I was 8, 10, 12 years old being the new kid at cafeteria, you know, in the cafeteria, trying to find friends that I could sit next to at lunch. Um, and it's kind of how I feel some of my, my sales skills have derived from is that uh, being the new kid and, and trying to find a place to sit. Now, have you always wanted to be in sales? Was that something that you had always dreamed of doing? You know, I, I don't know that I ever really, it never really clicked to me other than when I was growing up, my parents always said I was going to grow up and be a lawyer. Now, the thought, even at a, as a young child, the thought of law school, to me, I couldn't wrap my head around doing it. It's, you know, I, I, it's funny because I'm friends with lawyers. Uh, just the, the law school seems so daunting to me as a task. After college, to go to more school and more school. And I really wanted to be more out in the workforce. So I never really saw myself as getting into sales necessarily, more just naturally. I was able to convince people to do what I wanted them to do. That was honestly, as a little kid, you know, having friends sleep over, I was able to rationalize with my parents and negotiate 
having my friend sleep over if I did X, Y, and Z. If I did these chores, then Bobby could come over and I could, I could negotiate, even as a young child, these deals. And it's so funny now looking back, uh, you know, this is 20 years ago, but I was making these deals as a young child that were a penny at the time. It was a sleepover. It was stay up an hour later or whatever, but I would be able to find deal points that I know can get my parents comfortable to get to a point where I was, I would get what I was wanting to do or what I was wanting to accomplish. So I don't know that I ever necessarily had that light bulb of I'm going to get in sales. It was more of just naturally in my life. I was getting people to do what I was trying to negotiate them to do. And what brought you to Nashville to go to college? Why Nashville, Tennessee, out of all of the other places that you've lived? Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was really big into music growing up. Through elementary school, I was always in choir. Through middle school, I was in show choir. High school was in, a, you know, one of the top show choirs in the nation. We were traveling. We were competing. And at the time, I really was thinking in my head I wanted to be a country music star. That's what I was going to be, you know, and from the time I was a sophomore in high school to senior in high school, I was moving to Nashville to be a country music star. And that's what I wanted to do. Cowboy hat, cowboy boots and all, <laughs> even though I was an army brat from, you know, London and Edley and, and DC and New York, you know, other than being from Georgia and living in Georgia for my first eight months as, uh, as a human, I yeah. was, never really had a the whole Southern angle, but for some reason I really loved country music. I loved Austin by Blake Shelton and I loved Lone Stars. Uh, so I just, I had this country music drive in me. And so, you know, when I was going through high school and really deciding what college I wanted to go to, I did not, I had a, I, candidly, I had a quite negative high school experience. I didn't have a lot of friends. I never really fit in. I was always picked on. I junior and senior year, I carried a backpack every day where everyone else was using their locker. I didn't use a locker my whole junior and senior year of high school because I didn't want to go to the locker bay where I would be taunted and teased and made fun of and so I would go to the choir room and I would play piano or I would play guitar or I would talk with my teachers that's how I spent my junior and senior year of high school because I didn't want to get teased by my you know the people I went to high school with so it's interesting because I thought Nashville was an escape for me and it was the big city of Nashville and I didn't want to go to high school 2.0, which when I was in Northern Virginia. And so high school 2.0 was George Mason or James Madison or Virginia Tech. Great school. But it's where everyone I went to high school with that teased me constantly was also going. Hmm. And so I knew I wanted to get far away from that. I wanted to go, quote unquote, make it. And at the time in my life, it was going to Nashville and, and pursuing my dreams there. That's really what made me kind of take that route of going to Belmont University in Nashville. And where did you graduate with yeah so it's interesting because that was one of my first kind of setbacks really in in my life is i auditioned as a senior in high school to be in the music program at Belmont and was to be a music major and so that would be a vocal music theory and and you know i'd taken music theory classes and ap music theory and my senior year of college or senior year of high school i'd taken ap music theory that was how you make it is you go and be a music major and learn all of the theory behind music. And that's how you go, you know, win Grammys in the future. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't make the program. I didn't get accepted. Uh, it was a real setback for me because it made me really question my dreams and question Am I on the right path? If the school isn't going to even accept me, 
who's to say a label will accept me one day? And so, you know, I, I had long conversations and is this the, still the route I need to go? Is Belmont really where I want to be if they're not even going to accept me into the music program? Uh, but I spoke with a couple of professors actually on the music business side at Belmont and they said, you know, we have a lot of people that come in either undecided year one or come in as a music business major year one. And then you can re-audition year two if you still want to be in the music program. And music business at Belmont University is world famous. It's one of the few music business programs in the country. And it was an opportunity where I would still be in the music world at Belmont, um, but focusing more on the business side, which is funny because at the time when I first heard it was, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to be the performer. I don't want to be on the business side. Yeah. But now retrospectively, I am so, so thankful that that's the route I went because that's where my, that's how my brain works is the business side. It's the, it's the sales of it. It's the negotiation. It's, you know, and you know, what I was focusing on in college obviously is, is the management of the business. It's how do you get record sales up? How do you negotiate the deals? If it's a global song, how do you negotiate the licensing of it? And so it was interesting because uh, at the, you know, as a senior in high school, I was so turned off by it. But day one, being in the music business program at Belmont, I was like, this is the route I want to go. And I never looked back to even re-auditioned into the music program at Belmont because I was so gung-ho of, of music business. Currently, you live in Los Angeles. How did you end up leaving why did you leave nashville or how did you end up in los angeles yeah so that's a, another one of my failures that i i will say i spun into success is i remember getting the phone call when i was at the airport at jfk that i'd been accepted into the warner brothers records internship program which is super excited i was going to go be a big wig at, for a record label and so i followed that you know had a great internship there had some great experiences followed that up and went to capitol records had a great experience there. And then followed that up and went to Sony Music Group and had a great internship there. At the end, you know, senior, so my senior year is when I was interning with Sony Music Group and there was a job opening. So that was kind of my segue. It was, you know, go from an intern to a full-time position. And there were several interns going after this job and it was in A&R at Sony Music my senior year of college. In my mind, it was, I'm going to get this job and then I'm going to be in the record label and I'm going to work my way up through the record label and going to be success and stay in Nashville. And this is my life. I have it. I have the book written. Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't get that job. I remember that being kind of another failure in my life is I was really questioning again, did I choose the right path? I just now have earned a college degree. I stayed in Nashville because I was going to work in Nashville and this was going to be my life. I was going to work at a record label, but I didn't get the job. I didn't get an entry level job. It was for me, it was like, did I make the right choice? Is this where I want to be? Is this, you know, what I was supposed to do? So I really did go through a process where it took probably about two months of talking with friends. And, you know, I was working at a restaurant at the time and talking to people that had been around and been in New York and been in LA and been in Miami and, you know, other major cities. You know, I'm, I'm, I like big cities. It's just where I kind of I, I can find myself. It was funny because I had some friends that I went to college with. In fact, when I was a senior in high school, we did a thing called Towering Traditions at Belmont. And it was an onboarding process to get you accustomed to the college environment. My very first day, so we're still seniors in high school, about to go, you know, for the fall semester at Belmont. And I met someone named Josh Eddy. 
Josh was my mentor and Josh had a group of, you know, seven or eight people that he mentored into this is what Belmont is. This is what the college experience is, et cetera, et cetera. And we had kind of stayed friends through my college experience. You know, I called him a couple of times when I needed advice or you know, help with a course because he was also a music business major. And he had made the move out to L.A. You know, I would reached out to him and it was funny because he was like, hey, I have a couch you can stay on for a couple, you know, for two weeks if you want to just come out here, see what it's like just to see what L.A. is. We have record labels here. We have talent agencies. We have all this. And it's funny because while that conversation was happening, every Sunday night, my friends and I, we were all obsessed with Entourage. We watched Entourage every <laughs> Sunday. It was our thing. We joked about it. We laughed about it. It was the life that I had in my dreams of this is what I want to achieve is this lifestyle of the friendship of this group of friends and how much fun they have, you know, gallivanting around the world. There was a character on there called Ari Gold and Ari's a, you know, big talent agent. Although I don't agree with some of the things he, how he handled situations overall his, you know, he's driving a Ferrari through Beverly Hills with a beautiful house and he's managing top talent agents or he's a top talent agent managing top talent in the industry. And there was this way about how he handled situations that I really aspired to do in terms of from a business perspective. There was a, a part of me after having that conversation with Josh of, hey, come out, sleep on my couch for a couple of weeks, just see if you want to be out here. If, if this is the lifestyle for you, if this is where you want to be, that a part of me was like, I can go and make it and be, be our goal. I can do that. I can be a top agent in L.A. It's not going to happen in Nashville. Clearly, a record label doesn't want me. Um, I have something, you know, I don't have something that they're looking for. And so why not give it a try? I had a couch to sleep on for two weeks. And while others with a two week notice may have, you know, bought a plane ticket and flown out, stayed on his couch to come back to Nashville. I instead loaded up my entire car <laughs> door to door with every single thing I could possibly fit in it. And, you know, commissioned one of my friends to join me and drove from Nashville to LA and never looked back. Wow. Now I know there's a lot in between there. Uh, Give us a, a few highlights of, or lowlights, if you may. I mean, how'd you go from mm -hmm. the couch uh, to sure. work your way up from there? Yeah, from you know, the couch to the bed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a king size bed now, fortunately, okay. which, okay. been, which is a nice change. Yeah, good. You know, it, it's interesting how the world works because one of I was in a fraternity, Phi Capital, in college. Um, so we had a lot of friends, obviously, that were all out and traveling and, and going around and networking. And we hosted the presidential debates my, uh, in 2008. What we did then is because of the presidential debates, we had a lot of news crews and a lot of uh, you know, people from L.A. and New York uh, on property in, uh, at Belmont. Uh, one of my fraternity brothers, Chris Speed, became friends with uh, some of the crew that was working on Entertainment Tonight. So he made friends with one of the producers. His name is Kanan. And it, they just kind of stayed friends on Facebook and chit-chatted and things like that. Anyway, he lives at Canaan at the time, lived in Los Angeles. And so, you know, Josh, I was able to stay on Josh's couch. Chris connected me with Canaan and he was like, hey, you know, you guys should just meet and have coffee. I drove in um, to L.A. We, we drove in, my friend Dan and I, we drove cross country. Very first stop we did is we went to the beach. We went to Santa Monica Beach, put our toes in the sand. You know, it was the first time I ever touched Pacific, so I wanted to have that experience. And then the next day, I had lunch with uh, Kanan. 
Kane and came and we were just, you know, chatting and having coffee. And he was like, so what do you want to do? Never passing up an opportunity. I had my resume ready. And so I put my resume out on the table and I said, you know, I'd love to tell you about myself. And it's funny because he, you know, retrospectively, Kane and I are still friends. He laughed about it. He was like, well, this isn't a job interview. I'm just having coffee with you to talk about the city and some things you might want to go see. He was like, I was thinking I was more playing tour guide rather than (laughs) job interviewer. But he was like, but it's funny that you pulled that out because I was actually having coffee with a friend a couple days ago who said he was looking for someone with some of your skill set. Wow. So let me just give him a call. So he called someone named Adam and he was like, Hey, I'm, you know, we're at St. Felix on Santa Monica Boulevard. Are you free? And he's like, well, I'm two bars over. I'll, I'll swing on by. That was on a Thursday. And I met Adam and he was, we looked over my resume as well. And he was like, Hey, I want you to come in and meet our, our vice president tomorrow in our office. That Friday, I went in and had my interview the next morning. And then by Monday, I had a full-time job. Wow. And so I started the following Monday. I had a full-time job. I was working at the Hollywood Reporter TV. It was the Hollywood Reporter. It's a, a big magazine, a big publication here in Los Angeles. And they were doing a spinoff of TV, kind of a la Entertainment Tonight. Uh, but it was broadcast throughout China. So airing in over a billion homes a week. And we were, at the Hollywood Reporter television, the uh, source of what was going on in Hollywood for China. And so it was, where does George Clooney's favorite Italian restaurant to where does Matthew McConaughey learn how to surf um, and everything in between. So it was interesting that I went literally from having lunch with a friend's friend to having a full-time job by that Monday. So at the Hollywood Reporter, what exactly did you do for them? Yeah, so at the Hollywood Reporter... My role was I got hired as a PA, so I was a production assistant. All the glitz and glamour stuff of carrying cables, carrying cases. You know, we would do on location, you know, like I was saying, where George Clooney's favorite Italian restaurant, well, we would go and interview the chef and talk about what George's favorite dishes were and talk about what that experience looked like and talk about the menu. And so we would go location to location in my role was to carry the cables and carry the cases and make sure the lighting was correct and put the screens up and all those things you work so hard for a college degree to be able to do. Um, You know, within about two months, in fact, my boss actually left to go work at Extra. So her role was vacant. And because I had been there, I was so tenured at my two months, they promoted me (laughs) to segment producer. And so segment producer, my role was to come up with the content that we would film. Once that content was filmed, listen back to the tapes, transcribe it, and then write the piece that would be a two to three minute piece within the show. And we would produce the pieces that were, you know, two to three minutes to compile and make up the 27 minute show. And so my very first one was, like I had mentioned, is, Matthew McConaughey, where does he learn to surf? So we got in touch with Matthew McConaughey's surf instructor in Malibu. We went out to Malibu and filmed it on location on the beach. And then we had our on-air talent take a surfing lesson with his instructor. And so that was my big break was, uh, was producing this segment on the beach in Malibu. And it was, it was funny because it was, you know, I'd only been in L.A. a little over two, probably two and a half months at the time. And I was already producing content in Malibu. And it was I, part of me pinching myself on the beaches of Malibu, not a bad place to be on a Wednesday, uh, kind of saying, wow, this is where I want to be. This is the right path for me. I think I've made the right decision by being out here in Los Angeles. 
And why did you leave that company? You know, being at the Hollywood Reporter TV and the segment producer, and I, I liked what I was being able to do. The problem is that because we were producing content for China, we had incredibly strict restrictions on what we could actually shoot. And so we did a whole segment piece on uh, Victoria's Secret and the fashion show and the talent and who was new modeling and what, how expensive these pieces were. I remember the Saturday that it was supposed to go to air and we had, you know, CCTV shutting it down and we were having to backfill with new content. And it was a fire drill that I experienced that really made me kind of question this path only because the creativity we really didn't have because we were so restricted in terms of what we could talk about, what we could say, what we could show that after being there for about eight months, I felt like I'd hit a wall where all the creativity had dissipated. We, we weren't able to do anything else. It was just a, another show about, you know, 20 celebrity dogs and what breeds they have. Other than that, I felt like we were just regurgitating the same information over and over. And so, although it, it was a great experience for what it was and it was a great starting point, I literally hit a wall where I just felt like, if I'm not able to be creative, I'm bored. I am bored. I'm literally sitting in an office behind a desk where I'm not able to really be out doing new, uh, you know, creating new content because I'm afraid that I'm going to have another fire drill, that this is pushing the boundaries. Or, and so I, I hit a wall. I took a giant risk. I, I literally only had a couple hundred dollars in my bank account, but I left. When I, I was in the middle of transitioning from one residence to another where I was kind of in between, I was at an in-between stage where, again, I didn't have a lot of money in my bank account. I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do next because I didn't have a job. I, I found myself homeless. I, I was homeless for a couple of days. Fortunately, it was only a couple of days. Um, but I was sleeping at a, a grocery store parking lot in Burbank and taking showers at the gym because I didn't want to ask my friends for help. I, I didn't want to do that. And so you know, I was, I was sleeping in the backseat of my Mercury Milan uh, in a grocery store parking lot. And I remember calling my parents and asking them if I could have money to pay for a hotel room. It's funny because at the time I was so frustrated with them, but I'm so thankful that they did this. They said, we'll put money in your account, but that money can be spent on a plane ticket home. That's your option. If you want money, we'll give you money, but it's only for a plane ticket. Otherwise, you moved out there. It's your job to figure it out. You have a college degree. You have all the tools necessary. Just because you don't have money doesn't mean you don't have other tools. What a great lesson. Just because you don't have any money doesn't mean you don't have any other tools. I love that. This is the halfway mark. Just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, please press that subscribe button. And tune in next week when I interview Robbie Damon. Robbie is the voice of the 2017 Marvel Spider-Man. He is Mr. Peter Parker. Here's a clip from next week's episode. So I went in and I got the vibe of it and did a uh, did my audition and did a couple of retakes with some direction and that was that you know you forgot you forget about it and then two weeks later my agent called and he's like hey remember that Marvel thing I was like yeah yeah he's like oh you're uh that was Spider Man and you're Spider Man. I was so frustrated with my parents at the time because I was like, it's so easy. You, you can help me out and you can pay so I'm not stranded here. But I was thinking about it the wrong way because instead of 
enabling me to continue doing what I was doing, it, it pushed me to really think about a solution. Really, what is my path? What am I trying to do? Why am I here? Moving forward in the story, Corey has a friend who reaches out to him and says, go get an air mattress from Walmart, set it up in my living room, and you can stay with me in my studio apartment. So during this time, Corey does that. He gets a job as a bartender at Barney's Beanery, and there he meets another man who offers an opportunity for Corey to watch his house while he goes out of town for a couple months. All he has to pay is utilities. This is where the story picks back up. Enjoy. I didn't have a ton of money, but I could afford a couple hundred dollars a month off of my bartending money. And it was in Westwood. And at the time of Barney's Beanery was opening up in Westwood. So I was there and made new friends. And I was, uh, because we were on uh, UCLA's campus in Westwood, I was able to network and meet a lot of people in, in college or recently out of college, which really set me up for my next biggest success because of those relationships I had made with the UCLA students. It's funny how the world works because I had another friend that I went to college with who had a friend that had just moved to L.A. and needed a couch to sleep on. I only had a studio apartment myself in Westwood. But just like my friend had extended to me, when I needed help, he let me crash in his studio. I did the same for my new friend who just needed a couch, a couch to sleep on. Then, you know, him and I, uh, we became friends and we decided to get a place together in Hollywood after that uh, couple months had, had expired where the person that was living in Westwood had to move back from Texas because the gig was done. So we were in uh, this new apartment in Hollywood and he was, he had worked the job and he had found a job where he was kind of promoting for a company. What do you mean by promoting for a company? Yeah. So he was, his job was his goal was he was working for a restaurant called Pink Taco, where his job was to bring people to the venue. And so during the day, every day, he would go to malls, he would go to shopping centers, he would walk up in El Melrose, where he would meet new people, primarily female, and his role was to get them to come to the restaurant in Century City, Pink Taco, where it was a vibe, where it was kind of a a lounge. It was a, an upscale, hip Mexican restaurant. Okay. And so his job was to make it a party and to get people there. So long story short, he found out that he actually had to move back to Virginia. And he was in a predicament because he had not been working there all that long, only about two and a half months. I remember him being on the phone with one of his friends in Virginia while I was in my bedroom and he was like, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. Cause I, I feel bad leaving this company high and dry. I need to find someone that could, might be able to take over for my role. And I remember after he hung and I was kind of thinking, I was like, man, I do not want to be a promoter. Promoter has a very negative connotation in, in Los Angeles. And you can, some promoters are lifelong promoters and you are a promoter for a club. And then that's what you're still doing when you're 50 years old. And that's for me, it's not what I wanted to do or, you know, on the path that I was really going. But I remember kind of thinking, well, I'm a server and a bartender here at a bar. It's, it can't be that much worse. It's that much worse in terms of, you know, the connotation that it has. So I went out and we were, you know, having a drink and I was like, Hey, would you mind if I at least interviewed for it? I would love to just see if I could do it. And he was like, yeah, I mean, if you think you're interested, I'd be happy to introduce you to Chad, the you know, guy who uh, that you'd be, you'd be working with. And so that was on a Thursday. And I remember the Friday, the next morning again, 
uh, I went in and met Chad. He was like, all right, Corey, you, you got a gig next Thursday. I want you to bring as many people as you can. Every girl you bring next Thursday, I'll give you $10. They get free drinks and free tacos all night long. If they're on your list, Wow, that's your audition. Right. And I had learned how, uh, my roommate Matt had been doing it is he was going to some malls and you know Melrose and things like that and well I was in on UCLA's campus and I know on every Monday night they have sorority meetings where sorority row at UCLA is all hundreds and hundreds of sorority girls so I was like well I'll just go to them I'll go to some of my coworkers at Barney's that are in sororities and ask if I can just make a quick presentation. I'll have a bunch of business cards printed on my own dime. I printed a bunch of business cards uh, with kind of what the offer was. And I remember that following, that was a Friday. I remember that following Monday, I just went to Sorority Row and I gave them all my card and I said, hey, come on this Thursday. Free tacos, free, free drinks on us. Uh, you have to be 21 and up, obviously. But that was my, my pitch. And previous to that Thursday, the most anyone had ever brought in was 34, 34 girls was the most anyone had ever brought in one night in one night Yeah, was was 34. And I had gotten hired the previous Friday. So it was less than a week later. And on my Thursday, I brought 267 girls <laughs> and they were all the sorority girls that were from UCLA. Not that it was uh, not the, necessarily the proudest thing I'd ever done is brought this many people, but it, it was an accomplishment and something that there was a line that, it was making people mad because they were having to wait. They were getting quoted three and a half, four hours to get seated because there weren't enough seats in the restaurant to get all of the people uh, seated. So in terms of the pop, the vibe and the energy and everything, it was a great success. My The next morning, I met Harry, the CEO, and, and Chad, and they sat with me and they said, so there's no way we're going to give you $10 for every person you brought in because it's just not, not it, financially. That would be paying. It doesn't make sense. They said, but instead of that, we'll give you a full-time job. We'll give you a full-time job where you're doing this, but you're also helping with some of the social media and some of the marketing, because clearly you have some great relationships. You can deliver when we need you. We can, you can bring in a lot of people at the last minute. So you have a full-time job. And that's how I got started. And, and that's how I got started with Harry Morton. That's how I got started with Kentaco. And it's funny how it literally just from – the relationships because I had to get a bartending job that that's what enabled me to be able to bring that many people on a last minute win. Wow. Now, did you, did you pick up the whole business card from your roommate or did you just do that on your own? Well, yeah, fortunately I had his, but Chad at the time was not going to print business cards because I wasn't an employee of his. Mm. I was just doing it to bring people as an audition and, so, but I had Matt's business card, and so I looked at it. I designed it. I was I photoshopped and things on my laptop, and so I just designed one that would look like it. And I went to a local printer, had them printed, and then on the back did the little offer. That's you know how it kind of all got going is uh, that I did it myself because I I needed something to make it more reputable rather than some random guy going in. But the business card made it a little more official uh, for the invite to come into the restaurant. How were you the one that was able to get out of the world of promotions? So it's funny because I was 
as you mentioned, I, I wanted to get out of the world of promotion. It's not what was not my dream job is to be promoting. So I got kind of into the, you know, when I was working for Harry, uh, I had some of the sales and marketing responsibilities given to me on the website and social media and things like that. And there was someone uh, named Jenny who was overseeing our event for the company. And so it was all the private events, the private dinners, you know, whatever a company wanted to do and buy at the restaurant, et cetera. Well, she called in sick one day and there was a big lead from Paramount Pictures. Harry, our CEO, transferred the call to me, put it on hold, and he was like, hey, Jenny's out today, but I need someone to quote them uh, an event, uh, a buyout of our restaurant. I need you to handle all of it. You're the only one in the office. I was literally the only one in the office. It was me and him in the office. He was like, I need you to handle it. Well, the only experience in planning events that I had ever had before this was in my fraternity at college, I was the one that planned the formals. I planned, you know, I worked with uh, one of my best friends, Ernie, he planned all the sorority parties, but I would plan all the formals and the get-togethers and the events. So the menus and the floor plan and the seating arrangements and the florals and all of those sorts of things that went into planning an event, I was handling, but certainly not in a capacity for Paramount Pictures where they're wanting to buy out the restaurant for one of their movie premieres. So I had no experience on that, but I put my kind of sales hat on and was like, well, I'm going to, let me find out their goals. Let me find out what they're looking to accomplish. And then how we might be able to fulfill their needs. So I had this call transferred to me and I talked to their you know, vice president of events and talked them through everything and what the options were. Now, at the time, I really didn't have that much of an insight into the business of the restaurant in terms of what they were making nightly, how much, you know, what their P&L would look like or anything. I didn't have that kind of insight yet. So I was just kind of basing it on one of my Thursdays and how many people I was going to bring in, how much each person might be able to spend and then multiply that by two. Well, that's going to make sense for us to do a buyout. Right. And so that's great. I quoted her. Yeah. I, I just pulled, literally pulled the number out of thin air. And I said, yeah, so to buy a salad on the wings tonight would be $50,000. Uh, you'd be able to do full branding inside. We can do a step and repeat. We can do a red carpet. I can include a photographer because one of my friends was a photographer. We can do this whole package deal for 50,000. And she was over the moon. That's a great deal. Everyone else has been quoting me more because we need to do a whole buyout. Let's get it done. Send me the contract. We're good to go. I hung up. I went in and told Harry. And little did I know that the most my predecessor had ever been able to sell an event for of a buyout was $30,000. So this number that I just grabbed out of thin air was 20000 more than anyone had ever sold out the restaurant. And on a Wednesday night, the restaurant was doing 10000 wow. So to now make... 50,000 is leaps and bounds over what the revenue potential was for that day. And so literally in his office that day, he said, Corey, you're now in charge of all private events for the company. This is your role. I had no training in it. I had no background other than again, what I had done in college, but I was now leading all private events for the company, which his portfolio had Viper room, Beecher's Madhouse, Pink Taco, and then soon to open a Pink Taco on Sunset Boulevard. I went from two, I'd only been at the company really two months to being a promoter, helping with social media, to now being in charge of all special events. Wow. Kind of crazy. a whirlwind where yeah. I take it till you make it. Um, and so I, you know, got all the templates and figured it out and then started, you know, handling more private events and more parties and working with the studios. And we were in Century City. So then figuring out, you know, 
full revenue potential and put sales plans together because I had that experience in college of, you know, putting sales plans together and marketing materials and what it needs to look like and from the font to the aesthetic and the paper quality and all of the things necessary to really sell this uh, experience and go to all the century city businesses where we would literally, I'd have the chef put chips and salsa bags because who doesn't love a bag of chips and salsa. And so we literally put thousands of bags of chips, like little to go chips and salsa together. And I remember going myself and delivered to the, every concierge in the city, going to every single hotel, going to every business in Century City, going door to door and just knocking it, knocking on doors and going to the legal offices and the attorneys and the insurance companies and the banks and giving them chips and salsa, meeting the administrator or the coordinator at the front desk, giving them my card and said, if you ever need anything, if you ever need a, an anniversary dinner or a birthday party or something for you or something for the company, let me know. I was able to, you know, in my first year, really grow the business 200% just in event sales because they really, before me, was really waiting for the phone to ring instead of going out and making uh, the phone ring. Little things like chips and salsa that's incredibly inexpensive for the kitchen really made a difference to someone where you bring a bag of chips and salsa at 2.30 in the afternoon when they were just sitting at their desk. It's a nice little, it's a nice little treat that everyone is able to enjoy. And it really made a difference in terms of the revenue we were able to generate because of it, because of the calls that we were now getting for holiday parties and movie premieres and things that a Mexican restaurant didn't historically really capture. Uh, because of that outreach, we, we started to really capture a, a lot of that new business. Wow. Okay. So you're overseeing all the sales, marketing, branding, special events for this company. What made you leave that job and what kind of got you to the point where you are today? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because, because I was doing the events, um, I was working, I was doing a lot of networking events and going out and meeting other colleagues in the space at some of our competitors. And so I made some, some friends uh, at SBE, the entertainment company. And I actually got a job offer from the company to leave Harry. And at the time, I was not making that much money working for Harry. I had a great title. I had a great responsibility. But I wanted more. I didn't have a director title. I was the sales and marketing manager, which for, you know, only being out of college a couple of years, was, it was a, a fine title. But I wanted a director title because I now was growing the business and doing everything. So I got this offer from SBE at the time to go in and, and be on the events and partnerships team, which is what it was called at the time. And so I went into Harry and said, hey, just, you know, you know, I, I've received another offer and that I'm probably going to take. And I wanted to give you a heads up. I really thank you for giving me the opportunity. I didn't tell him how much the offer was for. Only he was just he gave me kind of a, a no, you're not leaving. I'm. Tell me what you want. How much money do you want? And what title do you want? And we're going to make it happen. Well, I didn't tell him how much my offer was. So, and I really wanted a director title. So I told him, I said, okay, double my base salary, double it. And I want a director of sales and marketing title. And then I'll stay. And he's like, where do I sign? Done. Wow. It's effective tomorrow. Wow. So literally overnight went from making not great money to now pretty good money as a director. 
only all because I got one offer that I was able to leverage against. So now I kind of, that really opened up and it was right at the time that Sunset Strip was opening for Pink Taco. And so I was critical to the business in terms of the design and the sales plan. And they had a huge event space on the third floor that I was kind of a critical piece of in terms of filling it with, with Hollywood events and red carpets and things like that. And so I was now making pretty good money. I was, uh, it opened me up because when you have a director title, you get a little bit more reply from some higher level decision makers, you know, doing that and, and did that for probably another almost a year. And it was having great success. And then Sunset Strip had opened and I, I'm a suit guy, I was wearing a suit and tie. It's what I always wore. I thought it presented myself the best. Plus at the time, I was 22, 23, 24 years old, having a director title. I was insecure because I felt that I looked young. And the only way for people to take me seriously asking for these big sums of money was if I was wearing a suit and tie where it just made me look a little older. I grew my, you know, five o'clock shadow as much as I could and wore a suit and tie because I was hoping that that would make me look older so that I could close these bigger deals. I never talked about my age. I never, I would always bounce around the subject or divert. But I remember one day we were at the restaurant and, and having a margarita and Harry looked at me and said, Corey, I don't want you wearing a suit and tie anymore. It's not the brand. I want you wearing a shirt, a t-shirt and jeans. That's what I wear. He wore, you know, uh, a John Barbados sweat t-shirt and Levi's every day. That's what he wore. And he told me, he's like, I want you to wear a jeans and t-shirt. That's way more, that's way more us. We're cooler. We're not a suit and tie kind of place. And I remember going home that day and really, and talking to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And I remember having this conversation with her and I said, that's not me. I'm not a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy on the weekend. Sure. Mowing my lawn, of course, but I'm not a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. And I don't know if I would feel comfortable asking for these large sums of money. If the client who is a little more dressed up working at an agency or working at a record label or studio or wherever they, they may be, may look at me and, and laugh. And, and that's what I was legitimately concerned about. So I, I started doing some outreach of some luxury properties where I could wear a suit and tie and I'd be comfortable in a suit and tie just down Sunset Strip. There's a, there's a hotel called the London Hotel. And I'd made friends with the general manager there. He said, Corey, why don't you come on by? You'd love to see what you might be able to do here. Literally about a week after I'd been told by Harry to be in jeans and a t-shirt, I got an offer from the London Hotel to run the event program at the London Hotel, which is a beautiful luxury hotel on the Sunset Strip with a rooftop that can do events for 800 plus people, plus a giant ballroom and a third floor event space and just a really stunning property. And in this role, I was required to wear a suit and tie every day. Mm-hmm. So it was perfect for me because it's exactly what I wanted to do. So I again gave my notice to Harry. He again wanted me to stay, but I said, you know, this is, it's, it's been a great run. I've had a great experience. Thank you for everything, but it's ready to, I'm ready to take my talents elsewhere. So that's why I went over to the London hotel. Uh, One of my biggest uh, events that I I still talk about today is I had a great meeting with Bentley, the car manufacturer, where they were wanting to do something really unique and really different. And they were launching a new car called the Flying Spur. We had an event space. It was on the, the rooftop of the London Hotel. You know, my idea was to have a helicopter drop off the car on the roof, but 
we went through a path with the FAA and they just weren't going to allow that. There's too much risk of my ability of dropping a $300,000 car on the rooftop of a hotel by a helicopter. Um, I bet, so yeah. that got nicked. Yeah. They, they, there's some insurance complications there. I'll say it that way. Um, but you know, what we were able to do is I started calling crane companies and again, I'd never done this. My events were at a Mexican restaurant doing seated dinners and, you know, some movie premieres, but it was, not anything like this. Um, but I started calling crane companies and they said, Hey, can you crane a car up onto the roof? And about had about six different crane companies that came by. And finally one was like, yeah, we'll do it. We'll take all the insurance. We'll take all the liability and all of those things. I worked with structural engineers. We had the original developers of the hotel come out and, and make sure the weight bearing load and all of those things, all these new things that I was learning, which is very fascinating and things I still use to this day. Um, but I then went back to Bentley and pitched it to them and had American Express come on as a sponsor to crane a Bentley onto the roof of the hotel, had it floating on top of the pool, where for the first hour of the event, it was all boxed up. And so there was just a big box sitting on the pool where people didn't really know what it was. And then about an hour into the event, the lights started going and the box started shaking. And then all four doors in the box came undone. And there was a beautiful Bentley flying spur sitting on the, the pool at the rooftop of the London. And so amazing event was covered in biz bash and was in a bunch of event uh, magazines um, but that was kind of really my first big event that i can take credit for is you know thinking outside of the box of how to do something really cool and really different and having a, a three hundred thousand dollar car craned onto the rooftop of a hotel on the sunset strip i would say qualifies as that and so it, it was a great experience and, and one i'm really proud of still to this day well, let me ask you just a few questions. You know, my normal format of this podcast is I'll ask a couple questions about failure and success and things like that and, and ask you to share some stories or situations. You've already shared your story, so let me just ask you a few questions to kind of follow up with that story. Uh, if you could give me your definition of failure. I would say failure to me would be not getting what I planned to get at the time. And it's a, it's a tricky one to really put my finger on, but I would say in my life, the failure that I would say I, I, you know, suffered was when I had something in my mind of what I wanted to achieve, whether it was getting into the music program or getting that job at Sony. And I didn't get that at the time that was failure. I, I had failed. I had set my sight on something, got my hopes up, and I didn't achieve that. And so it was those failures that set me back, that made me really do a full adjustment of what I needed to do next to get around it and pursue and achieve on. Do you have a sort of a checklist in your mind that you go through if you face a failure? Like, is there something that you're like, okay, this happened, I need to do this to change my situation? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how, how much of a tangible list I've ever necessarily put together, but for me, it's always been getting my sights on something, having a goal, and then if I don't achieve that goal, what I need to do to recalibrate, mm. um, to pursue on. And it's funny because some of my biggest quote-unquote failures have put me on the course that got me where I am today. If I had gotten into the music program at Belmont, 
I don't know what I would be doing today. I, would I be a music professor? Would I be, a, 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 in theory, I don't know. If I had gotten a job at Sony Music, where I was an A&R at Sony Music, I would probably still be in Nashville working at a record label. And that's a great job. And there's a lot of people that are very happy with that. But I don't know that that's what I would have, you know, five years into that, if that's what I would have been happy doing. And I would have been in a position where there's not a lot of, if you're kind of stuck in that, there's not a lot of ways out if you're there. And so it's funny because at the time, that's what I wanted to achieve so desperately was to get this job at Sony and work at a label. But now I'm so very happy that I didn't get that because it's what enabled me to try something new and to venture out and move to Los Angeles where I've now met my wife. And I wouldn't have had any of those life experiences had I stayed in Nashville or had I gotten into the music program. And so these failures enabled me uh, to recap, to recalibrate and readjust and really think about what I wanted to accomplish next and how it was going to set this new goal that I was going to set my sights on. Do you consider yourself to be successful? It's, I don't think so. No, not yet. Uh, I'm very happy. I'm very fortunate with what I've accomplished, you know, last, uh, oh. Three months ago, CSQ, is this, a magazine called C-Suite Quarterly, honored me as one of the te- top 10 uh, movers and shakers in the entertainment and sports industry here in Los Angeles that were on a path to success. And, you know, I'm very humbled by that and appreciative. But I wouldn't say I'm successful yet. I, I've had success in my career. I've had success in my personal life. But I don't know if I'll ever want to say I'm successful because I'm scared that if I say I'm successful that I will want to relax in that and become complacent which that's certainly never something I want to do you know I'll I'll enjoy taking vacations but I will want to keep fighting because there's always another uh, something that I'm setting my sights on so I've had success I'm incredibly fortunate and happy with the life that I've accomplished but I still so much more to do let me ask you a few rapid-fire questions as we wrap up this conversation. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. If you had a T-shirt that defined who you were with either a logo or a slogan, what would be on that T-shirt? Oh, this is an easy one. I only have one tattoo, and this is I would put the exact same thing. Every man dies, not every man truly lives. Mm, nice. What is the most gifted book that you've given to other people? Uh, well, I will say the, the book that kind of inspired me, I know it's an interesting one, but it's the very first book I ever read on my own. And it's Danny the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. It's a book where, long story short to summarize, is Danny is tasked with bringing all these pheasants and, and killing these pheasants that he doesn't want to do uh, to win a prize. And so what he does is instead of going out and shooting the pheasants to bring them he thinks about it a different way and has some sleeping pills that he puts in with the raisins with the feed that the pheasants eat so that it makes them look like they're dead so that he can wrangle them up, show the great prize, but then be able to release them. For me, it was a book that not only was it my first book that I ever read on my own, which as a child, I was very proud of myself, but it was more about being faced and up against a wall with a situation with something that you, you didn't want to do, but he had to think in a creative way to still find a solution. And so I think it's, it's at a very young age, it instilled in me 
there's always another way. There's always another route. There's always another path. And so for me, it was kind of something as a child that I still recall to this day is, is being, being able to think about things a little differently. I can see how a lot of that has tied over into your career and the decisions that yeah. you've made. And I still go back to the, the fact that you created those business cards to hand out and make them formal invitations. I, I love that. Uh, that's thinking outside the box. And I think that's something that you've shown throughout your entire life. Yeah, thank you. I, as I said, you know, I always had to, you know, being forced to move every two years. And as a child, I was, I didn't love it, obviously, you know, but it, it's funny because, you know, the kids I went to high school with on their fourth grade field trips, they were going to see the Smithsonian's and see the Capitol, which are great things. My fourth grade field trip, I was in the canals of Venice and then going to see the statue of David and look at Da Vinci paintings. So oh, yeah. as, at a very young age, it's interesting. I had a very different upbringing. But it was something that always forced me to, to be the new kid. And, and that always made me have to think about things a little differently and, and find my, another way around. Before you leave us today, give us maybe uh, one little takeaway that you've learned throughout your life that you want to impart some parting wisdom on our audience. Some parting wisdom. I would say, you know, like as, as I've been able to do in my life when I've had these failures is you're not always right. And it's, it's a tough one for me because it's something I still face with my wife. I think I'm always right. And I think a lot of us struggle with this is kind of taking a step back and be like, hey, maybe I was incorrect on this one. And I use that only as encouragement because I was so gung-ho that I was going to get in the music program at Belmont and that's what I was going to do and that's what I was going to go win the Grammys are. Well, it's funny now because some of the people that I went to college with that were in music business have since won Grammy, mm -hmm. um, not as music majors. But other than, you know, and then when I was so gung-ho that I was going to get a job at Sony and that was going to be my career path and that was it. Well, thank God I wasn't right that that was the way I was going to achieve success because it wasn't. And I didn't and I failed. But because of that failure, I had to recalibrate and repurpose, you know, what I was doing and what I wanted to accomplish. You know, as I was saying, is because I wasn't always right on the path, it, it forced me to reevaluate and really think about what I want to do next, another way of getting there, another way of achieving it. I wanted to be Ari from Entourage. How was I, how was I gonna get there? I would have to sleep on some couches, I would have to sleep in the backseat of my car, but it was the path of getting there that has set me up with the relationships that I have, that I have this amazing wife that I, in a couple months will be, will have been married to for four years, that I have these friendships that I've been able to cultivate that have really flourished and you know i still have to this day and i'm so blessed and so fortunate that i was able to do these things but a lot of it because i wasn't always right along the way that concludes my interview with Corey conrad i really hope that you enjoyed it i hope you're able to learn a couple lessons along the way my biggest takeaway is just be willing to see where life takes you and work hard to get there think outside of the box you don't need money to be successful you just need to make sure that you use the tools that you have. And a lot of us already have a ton of tools around us. So be willing to pivot, find your passion, and enjoy life along the way. See you next week.